pray, and then let's go into it. The Lord be with you. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us uh, into fellowship with you uh, by the merits and mercy of your Son, Jesus Christ, and for raising up those uh, who are teachers, preachers, and uh, especially for Doug and his wife, Virginia. Uh, We thank you for their presence amongst us uh, this morning, and we pray that you would speak mightily through him, that we might indeed see Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. And it's really good to be with you. Uh, Am I on? Do you feel the amplification of this? John 3 is our text. It ties in really well to Adam Young's uh, message uh, given uh, in the earlier service. So if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to John 3 uh, with me. It's the conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. And our theme is... uh, Telling God's story, telling God's story of love. I'm, it's a privilege and a pleasure to be with you. Beeson feels very connected to the Advent, and you have so many of our people uh, in your congregation and uh, worshiping with you. And so Virginia and I are very pleased to be with you. In the service, Adam Young referred to uh, being on a plane. That plane was flying from Frankfurt to New York, and it blew an engine. And he talks about fear. Some of you have just come from that service. I was on that plane as well. Um, We were coming back from Israel, and uh, we blew the engine, and we both, I think Adam and I, had very different reactions. Um, Adam describes in the service that he was frightened and scared. I thought, you know, come on, we can get to New York on three engines. So I really resented it. We had to turn rack and go and fly. And it took us almost an hour to unload the excess fuel, which was, uh, I never realized that it would take that long for a plane to get rid of all of its uh, jet fuel uh, before we landed safely. And we did. And we made it back. Well, I want to begin by reading from John 3. Uh, in one sense, I have... Um, No entree before you except through the word of God. That's the only means by which I would have any kind of privilege to be able to communicate to you. So let's begin with the word then. John chapter 3, which I think is a beautiful passage, even in the light of what we've just heard um, today in the baptism and in the sermon. Listen carefully, this is God's word. Now there was a Pharisee a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing 
if God were not with him? And Jesus replies, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus responds, How can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised, you shouldn't be shocked, Nicodemus, that I'm saying to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher. And this is, this is the point that I'm going to focus on. You're Israel's teacher, Jesus says to Nicodemus. You're Israel's teacher. You're an Episcopalian priest. You're a Presbyterian minister. You're a Baptist evangelist. And you don't understand these things? You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we, why the plural? We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. It's very intriguing. Who is the we? Is it the we, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Is it the we, John the Baptist, and Jesus? Is it the we, Jesus, and the apostles? Is it we, the early church? It may be all of the above. The we, the plural testimony to what God is doing in Christ. And then Jesus says to Nicodemus, I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world. Isn't that interesting? The contrast between this very... um, kind of strange occurrence in the Old Testament of in judgment for the people's complaining and bitching God sends snakes to kill them and they complain and they lament and God says to Moses make a bronze snake put it up on a pole and everybody who looks at that will be healed and you put that incident, as it may strike us as weird, you put that incident against the most memorized verse in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not die but have everlasting life. And these two are placed in juxtaposition. This Old Testament incident and this everybody knows verse. This Christmas, we gave our third grandchild, Micah, who's one years old, the Fisher-Price manger scene. 
Now, you know, this, uh, it's a great gift, by the way, and Kennerly, our daughter, put it on sort of a shelf that's at waist level for this one-year-old toddler, Micah, and, you know, he doesn't understand anything about this. He can now identify the baby and Jesus. He really likes the camel best, and he handles these figures, these plastic figures, and he needs two theologians and his parents to explain this story. And it will take years to unfold. And the story is really so much bigger, certainly, than Micah. But as I look at it, the story is so much bigger than me. Even though, you know, how many years now of pastoring and doing theology, it's still, I'm a little bit like Micah handling these figures, these images that speak of such profound truth that goes so far beyond us. I, I really like Sally Lloyd-Jones, and I know Gil in the class for parents uh, right now is using this same book. Um, so for parents and grandparents, I think this is, this is a wonderful introduction to the story. And this is how she begins. Uh, and I know some of you have read this to your kids and to your grandkids. Sally Lloyd-Jones begins with Psalm 19. The heavens are singing about how great God is. The skies are shouting it out. See what God has made? Day after day, night after night, they're speaking to us. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky. He wrote it on earth. He wrote it under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror, to show us what he's like, to help us know him, to make our hearts sing. And then God put it into words. He wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should do and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing, it's about God and what God has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people that you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it. As you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book about rules or a book of heroes, the Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. Interject there on C.S. Lewis and myths and so forth. You see, the best thing about the story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. If you have the audio version of this, it's David Suchet. The, uh, I don't know, 
I find that when I ask millennials about David Suchet and Agatha Christie and PBS's Perot series, they all look at me blank. But I think there's some probably people in this room that have watched the Perot series. And it's on the audiovisual of Jesus' storybook Bible, it's his voice. And I thought you'd like to know that he came to Christ in 1986 at the age of 40. And he said he came sort of kicking and screaming like Jacob. And God wouldn't let him go. And, you know, the, the interview from his London apartment was really interesting because he said, he paused and said, you know, I've got 26 books on my shelf about the Apostle Paul. And he said, of all the people I would have liked to have played in my lifetime, he said, now I'm too old, would have been Paul the Apostle. But what Suchet said in that interview was, I like how Sally Lloyd-Jones gets us right into the story. And then he quoted from Luke 24 and that exchange with the disciples on the road to Emmaus when, how foolish you are, Jesus said, and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And that really ties in to this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. Now, you know that this is an artistic representation. We don't know how Nicodemus looked, and we don't know how Jesus looked, all right? But the visual can capture, okay? Dale Bruner calls it the magisterial Nicodemus sermon that we have just read in part. And there's two things that come out of this John 3, I think that most everybody can agree with, is that the story of God's love is beyond humanistic consumption. You just don't get there rationalistically. You just don't get there emotionally. You just don't get there on your own. The wind blows and you don't know where it's come from. Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, don't you understand that? The meaning of God's love is deeply rooted in the Old Testament. Let's take these two. It's somewhat translated here for us. Unless an individual is born all over again from above, that person cannot even see the kingdom of God. Please don't be shocked, Nicodemus, or you can fill in that blank, that I said to you, singular, it's absolutely necessary that you folks, you plural, be born all over again from above. The water and the spirit. There is all sorts of uh, interpretations of what Jesus meant by that reference, water and the spirit, but I think really in our worship this morning, those are brought together very beautifully in both the, the word and the sacrament. This is a quote from Justin Martyr. At our birth, we were born without our own knowledge or choice by our parents coming together. However, so that we may obtain in the water the remission of sins formerly committed, there is pronounced over the one who chooses to be born again and has repented of his sins the name of God, the Father, and the Lord of the universe. The one who is illuminated is thus washed in the name of Jesus Christ and in the name of the Holy Spirit. In the first few centuries, baptism was primarily an act, a responsible decision on the part of the believer. 
the individual understood what she or he was doing in confessing, in repenting, and turning to Christ for his mercy, thus being born of water and the Spirit. As time went on in the tradition of the church, paedo-baptism became something that was significant. And what I think, I think the primary biblical emphasis on baptism is the responsible decision on the individual. But the blessing of infant baptism is the fact that it underscores very dramatically that grace comes before. That it's not our act of will. It is not what we have done. It's not anything but the grace of God that defines this identity that we have in Christ. And this is what Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus, a religious leader. Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Now, who is included in the we and the are? As I said, I think that there's a variety of responses that people have given to who is the we and who is the are, uh, our testimony. I find it significant that Jesus does not use the, the I, the singular first person here that even Jesus sees himself as part of a flowing gospel story that began way back in Genesis. It began back in when, when God was delivering the curse to Adam and Eve and, and to the serpent, that uh, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. It goes way back to Genesis 3.15. And then it carries forward this, this story, this we. The question, I'm uh, starting a course at Beeson, which, by the way, uh, you know this, what, the lottery is now worth $3.1 billion. And hasn't it been interesting that uh, people with very good jobs, like Stephen Colbert and David Muir, are saying that they wouldn't show up for work on Monday if they won. Uh, I find that strange, um, because I do think I'd show up for my Beeson course if I did win. Or she'd have to buy a ticket, and I haven't bought a ticket. <laughs> but the idea that this course that I'm doing is preaching Christ from Genesis to Revelation, and the thought being, why did God do it this way? Why does he pull a man out of nowhere and call this nobody, man, Abraham, and give him a promise? through whom the nations will be blessed. And why does he set up Abraham this way? Even with Genesis 22 and the, the command to sacrifice his one and only son. Which immediately John 3.16 ties into, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It goes back to Abraham, you sacrifice your one and only son. And then at just a second before he goes about the sacrifice. His hand is withheld. As Flannery O'Connor says that, you know, it's one thing to believe in the doctrine of the atonement. It's another thing to see Abraham with knife in hand coming down. And unless the drama of redemption is that real to us, that important to us personally, we have yet not understood what it is to be redeemed by the one and only Son. 
And this progression through Exodus and Moses and, and the Passover lamb and a nation that goes into uh, bondage after the patriarchs for 400 years uh, and then is released with uh, the firstborn Egyptians dying and Israel being saved because of the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, the Passover lamb. This progression, which seems, why? Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Do you realize how kind of anti-religion the Bible truly is? And how God breaking in in ways not rationalistically explicable, certainly not naturalistically explained, in no way given to kind of humanistic consumption, but God-breaking. The wind blows and you don't know where it's coming from. Unless you're born by water and the Spirit, you can't even see the kingdom of God. What are the earthly and the heavenly things? Well, I think in this passage, leaning on some good interpreters here, I think the earthly things are that humanity is broken and it's twisted and it's need of... God's mercy and redemption. Those are the earthly things. The heavenly things, which Jesus says to Nicodemus, if you don't understand those earthly things, how are you going to understand the heavenly things? Well, I think the heavenly things then are the descent and the ascent of the Son of Man. The doctrine of the atonement. What that sacrifice on the cross literally means. The resurrection the bodily resurrection, the real physical in the flesh resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those are the heavenly things. Martin Luther referred to the Old Testament as the manger. Let me just quote him here. There are some who have little regard for the Old Testament. This is Luther writing in the 16th century in the 1500s, the great Protestant reformer. They think of the Old Testament as a book that was given to the Jewish people only and is now out of date, containing only stories of past times. But Christ says in John 5, Search the scriptures, for it is they that bear witness to me. The scriptures of the Old Testament are not to be despised, but diligently read. Therefore, dismiss your opinions and feelings and think of the scriptures as the loftiest and noblest of holy things, as the richest of minds, which can never be sufficiently explored in order that you may find that divine wisdom which God here lays before you in such simple guise as to quench all pride. Here you'll find the swaddling clothes, the manger in which Christ lies. Simple and lowly are these swaddling clothes. But dear is the treasure, Christ who lives in them. So Luther is using the analogy of the manger as the Old Testament cradling the one and only Son who is to come forth. And you realize that the trajectory of Old Testament history does tend to go down. It's very interesting. It, uh, you know, if you say that the peak is with David, King David, 
And then it begins to decline with Solomon and Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the division of the kingdom between the north and the south. And then kings that we have trouble keeping track of. A long list of Old Testament kings. And who emerges in the light of the disappointment of the kings but the prophets? You've got 16 prophets from Elijah to Malachi. And the storyline sometimes wears really thin as if we're going to lose it. And that redemptive salvation line is going to be lost. And it keeps going down, down, down. And it's interesting to compare the two exoduses. The exodus out of Egypt, which was a really big deal with the plagues and with the, the, the Passover and the exodus and all of that, so significant. But the, the second exodus, the Israelites sort of trail back from Babylon. They limp back in stages. It's a really meager kind of... It's not a celebrative. It's not a... And remember when they rebuild the temple, Haggai and Habakkuk and all of these individuals, when they rebuild the temple, there's some people weeping because they're so disappointed in what it was at one point. And then 400 years of silence from the end of Malachi to Matthew. It's off the radar. And then the one and only son is laid in a manger. You shall call him Emmanuel. You shall call him God present with you. It's come all the way down. Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? How is it that Jesus expected Nicodemus to get it? How does he expect you to get it? Because I think the the deck is stacked against belief. Fairly dramatically, I think. You don't just follow the bio and it leads to, oh yes, we've been waiting for you. There's something powerful about the work of God that is made necessary in order to believe. It's not easy to believe. You see, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that every single individual, whoever, who is simply entrusting oneself to him would never be destroyed. You know, my tendency is, I tend to be more in the Puritan rigorous tradition. But this is a line that speaks to me who simply entrusts herself, himself to the Lord. That's the, that's the way. That's our response. Simply entrust ourselves to him. And deep, lasting life is the gift. So undeserved. This is Luther again. You say, yes, I would gladly believe it. I would gladly believe what you're talking about here. If I were like St. Peter and St. Paul and others who are pious and holy, but I'm too great a sinner 
And who knows whether I am predestined? That's the question Luther raises. Here's his answer. Look at these words, John 3.16. Look at these words. What do they say? And of whom do they speak? For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him. Now the world is not simply St. Peter and St. Paul, but the entire human race taken collectively. And here no one is excluded. God's son was given for all. All are asked to believe. And all who believe shall not be lost. And I love this. Take hold of your nose. Now what is it that you're doing with a one-year-old all the time? Where's your nose? Where are your ears? Now, come on. You've got to have some human sympathy for that type of thinking. Or has it been so long that you've had a one-year-old? Where's your nose? Where are your ears? And this is exactly what Luther says here. Take hold of your nose. You're a person, aren't you? Don't you aren't you covered by the whosoever will? Don't you belong in this text? Take hold of your nose and search your heart. I think Luther says, search your bosom, but that doesn't work. Search your heart, whether you are not also a person, a piece of this world, and belong to the number which the world word whosoever embraces as well as others. If you and I are not to take this comfort to ourselves, then these words must have been spoken falsely and in vain. That's Micah discovering his feet. I want you, myself included, to discover that we're persons, that whosoever will may come. The gift we celebrate at Christmas wasn't wrapped. It was crucified. It was not under the tree. It was nailed to the tree. It was not opened on Christmas Day. It was opened on Easter morning. We very much do go from the cradle to the cross to the crown. One of my most memorable Christmases was uh, when I was fairly young, I think six, seven, or eight. I can't really remember. And, you know, when your parents uh, have gone, your repository <laughs> for uh, understanding some of these dates is also gone. Um, but I look back, I was pretty young, and my father knocked himself out one Christmas building a huge train set in the basement. We couldn't go down to the basement, we didn't know what the surprise was, and he bought secondhand a hobbyist train set. And then my father just, he enjoyed building models and plaster of Paris and things like that, and built just huge. It was, took up a third of the basement, Buffalo, New York. Uh, we spent a lot of time indoors in the winter. And he built this huge train set for my brother and I. And on Christmas Day, the, the gift wasn't under the tree. It was in the basement. And we were shocked when we saw, my brother and I, uh, what, God, what Dad had, had made. And uh, we played with it incessantly for two weeks. And then we got bored. And, you know, my father never expressed any disappointment about that. I don't remember ever any line like, well, you know, I made the, 
I knocked myself out that Christmas putting this train set together for you, and uh, now you guys don't even care about it. I, I never got that from him. I think he realized that maybe it was part of his vision, this wonderful train set, and that his boys were maybe a little too young to really appreciate it. I do remember that, you know, in about, oh, within that year, the next Christmas, he sold it. But what my brother and I remember about that Christmas is that our dad knocked himself out to give us a great Christmas. And so it's the story of that love, rather than the actual train set, that both my brother and I remember. I've spent a lot of time uh, these past few months in the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is such a powerful book. It ties in with, I think, our thought here. Hebrews 1, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. By him, the universe is sustained by his word. And after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, the majesty in heaven. The point that the preacher in Hebrews is getting at, as he goes on to describe through 14 affirmations who Jesus is, he says, be very careful to pay attention to this great salvation. It'd be wonderful in 2016 if we just paid more attention to this great salvation. And I guess we could discuss and we could pray together what that means to pay more attention to this great salvation. But that parable of the train set for me is I don't want to grow bored and sort of leave it aside. It's not that kind of gift to do that with. But we can grow into that gift like these babies that were baptized today, we want them to grow into this understanding of the great salvation. And I don't think we ever outgrow that need to pay attention to this uh, great salvation. Amen? Time for questions? So many times I hear people say, well, I've always been a Christian. I grew up in the church and my family's Christian. And so I just don't understand this born again position. You're for. I'm not one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I got a devil's advocate here uh, who's asking me, I don't get this born again business. Well, I mean, born again in a way, as a metaphor, has had uh, a difficult history with what we have done with it. And I think good preaching and good worship and in the household of faith helps to overcome whatever superficiality or whatever tackiness we have attributed to born again. It's one metaphor of many that powerfully speaks to the reality that we truly are born again in God through Christ. And that shapes one's identity from top to bottom from east to west and from north to south, every aspect of us. And I wasn't just joking when I said, I knew a teacher of religion, a teacher of Israel, you don't understand these things, because 
I think you can really be born in the church, raised in the church, and it just never has dawned on you. The reality and the truth of this. I mean, I know this as a pastor. I've preached. Uh, I remember one particular individual who listened to me for two years, preaching Sunday after Sunday, and then all of a sudden, it clicked. The Holy Spirit broke in, and boy, did he listen so differently after that. But for two years, I was a really boring person to him. <laughs> then the Holy Spirit came, and I became more excited, just because I was representing the Word. What do you say to the person sitting out here who, who you know, is worried whether or not they're born again, and how do they appropriate that from for themselves? I mean, you've talked a little bit about that, but can you flesh that out a little bit? Sure. Uh, you know, it, in that sense, it's really not about you, just like like your children born in your family or a child adopted in your family grows in that identity. But there is a security, and the security that is found by God's love for us. And I think that might be a fitting analogy for how we grow in Christ. Don't worry about your side of it. Because God has provided for you. The very fact that you are here, showing a desire to learn and understand more of the Word and to be in worship, and you're not here for some kind of social identity, you're here because of your identity in Christ. Uh, don't worry about that aspect. Just grow into it. Allow yourself to grow into it. Way, and I, you probably don't like my bringing this up, but could you comment on the doctrine of election? That is always the most confusing and difficult concept for me. Oh, I don't mind you bringing it up. <laughs> God is sovereign over everything. We don't come to God apart from God doing what God does. There's just no way that we can humanistically get to God through rationalism, through emotionalism, through our existential quest. We can't achieve that. So election really is not there as a conundrum intellectually as much as there as a ties in with Andrew's question. It, it's the fact that we can rest in God's providence. Now, Interesting, and this may help, I don't know, but in Ephesians, Paul writes to a fairly suffering, marginalized, ostracized, persecuted church. And he hits the theme of predestination, election, chosen, adopted, really strongly in the first seven verses. In the book of Hebrews, you have an opposite emphasis. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 6, for example, there is a strong concern. Look, if you, don't, if you don't get with this, if you don't grow in this, if you quit taking this so lightly, there's no second chance. So I think the orientation of the church, if the church is persecuted, the theme of Revelation tends to be God's elected, God's secured you, God's kept you. If the church is complacent and trivializing the gospel and making light of it, the preacher comes down hard 
on the fact that, look, you've got to take this seriously. But just that, that steady theological understanding. It's not an Allah Muslim determination. The Christian understanding of election is far more dynamic and far more reflective of the love of God and the security that God gives to us. Uh, and this, this Luther quote, don't exclude yourself because you don't think like you're Peter or Paul or predestined. Whosoever will, cut your nose. You're a person. God loves you. God died for you. That would qualify. Well, I'm not going to go where problems haven't been asked. Um, we'll save the limited atonement for some other time. Mr. Coffey. I'm interested in the comments that I read some years back in the Anglican Digest, a, a letter from an, a Christian in Australia who made the point that David made, I've been a Christian all my life, and where is the born again? It, it occurs to me that God comes to us in his time, at his time of choosing, at his place of choosing. We sometimes say, I found God, but I think that's a terrible thing to say. I think God finds us. And he reveals himself to us in his time in the manner in which he wants to be revealed to us that he might encourage us and use us for his purposes. And it's, not a, it's not a searching, it's a yielding that brings that, that, welcoming, that welcoming symbolism from God. Always invitational on the part of, I mean, I hope that every Sunday here at the Advent there are people who are coming who are really searching and who are able to express their doubt and are concerned to find God. I'm, I'm not going to criticize that language, even though ultimately I haven't met anybody who's come to God in Christ who has said that God has not been there before. God leads. God initiates. Even when we don't realize that. So we want to be open to seekers and searchers and doubters, for sure. Any other questions? I have one. This will be our last. This is probably on the silly, but um, for me, personally, um, and maybe I'm off, but um, is it not possible that we are like almost born again every day? I mean, that, that need for yielding to is not a one and done, mm -hmm. but that it's an over and over and over again. Yeah, we're told that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And to be born again, we want to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ every day. That kind of growth is... Uh, and that's what makes this uh, dynamic and vital. Um, it's like the analogy of a farm and crops. What's important on a farm? The buildings or the crops? Well, the vitality of a farm is found in it's what it grows, not in the buildings. So the vitality of the advent is not in your structure. It's in sisters and brothers in Christ growing in the household of faith. You're the crops. And that's what's valuable. That's what's nutritional. That's what, yeah. And you get the analogy. I think it is a daily. You're quite right. To be born again is to be growing. 
and to be moving forward. Ah, good. Well said. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your goodness, for your love and mercy extended to us. Please continue showing us the power of your word in our lives, personally, we ask. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.